in light of it, ability to live as you would have us do. And pray that we would hear your word as your word, that we would hear you speaking in it, and that through it you would stir us up to love, to kindness, to building others up, and that you would help us to understand the purpose for which you give your gifts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could have any ability from God, what would it be? If you could go to God for any power at all, any supernatural gift, what would you ask for? I mean, even if we had to limit it to things found in the Bible, that's not a small list. Samson had superhuman strength. Methuselah lived for almost a thousand years. Philip in Acts seems to have teleported. Peter walked on water, though only briefly. People healed the sick, raised the dead. Joshua stopped time. Elisha made iron float on water, which admittedly is weird. Elijah brought down fire from heaven. Moses had the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and infinite food. While supernatural gifts aren't common for most people throughout the Bible, God acting in history enabled people to do amazing things, miraculous things. His omnipotent power worked in people in history and did the impossible, accomplished the unthinkable, worked acts of deliverance and power and glory that the people never would have expected and which changed lives when they were seen. So which would you choose? If you could ask God for any supernatural gift, what would it be? Now, that might seem just like a silly thought experiment. It might even sound just like a way to begin a sermon and to get you thinking about something related to the passage tonight, and it is, but it's also more than that. I want you to think about it because I want you to think of another question. What if God is still working? What if God still does marvelous things in his church? And what if he sometimes answers our requests for power or for ability or for insight beyond our nature, beyond what any of us, even on our best days, could do? What if to this day, every day, God is doing supernatural things in his church, in people like you and like me, but we just don't know where to look? or what to value. In our passage tonight, we have Paul talking to a church that knows that God works. He's talking to a group of people who have seen God do unexplainable things in one another's lives. And Paul writes to a church who see the miraculous regularly. And he tells them what gifts they should ask for. He guides them to the right way of seeking and stewarding spiritual gifts. And what he says might be surprising to us. So let's look to the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 19. It reads, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit. 
On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking to the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, I know that passage was on the longer side for us to take in all at once, and there's a lot going on. But at the core of it, God is trying to show us how we should think and feel and desire spiritual gifts. But these gifts do not exist in a vacuum. God doesn't just do miracles because they're impressive or would provide great inspiration for the next Marvel superhero. No, as with all things God does, his miracles and his gifts are centered around love. And the point of this passage, the thing you should walk away with is this. Pursue love. Pursue love by asking God to give you supernatural ability to love one another. All powers, all prophecy, all mysteries, all the great plan of God from eternity past to eternity future come down to love. And as God honors Christ and builds up his church by giving gifts to each and every one of his children, he does it so that you and I would grow in love. And as we go back through this passage, I hope that we'll see that and we'll set off in new ways of loving one another. And more than that, I hope and pray that our perspectives and our values will be changed because I bet that moving from what are essentially biblical superpowers to hearing another message on love is kind of a letdown. 
And at first, it, it kind of feels that way to me, too. I, I would love to have instant understanding of all of the mysteries of the universe. And a manual on how to get a power like that would seem a lot more interesting to me, a lot more valuable than a passage that tells me the almighty and infinite God is willing to give me abilities that I naturally don't have, willing to make me more than I otherwise would be. But it's also that I could better love the person right next to me or the person down the road or the person on the other side of this screen. That outlook is wrong. It's fundamentally selfish. And I'm hoping that this passage, God working through this passage, will work in my heart and in yours to correct that and to lead us to value things as they are really worth. And so again, the main point of this passage is pursue love by asking God to give you the supernatural ability to build up and love others. So first, pursue love. Let's look at the first half of verse one. And it reads, pursue love. There it is. I may not be creative, but at least I'm honest. Now, you all have been going through 1 Corinthians, and so you know something about love. From what I hear, you have spent six messages going through 1 Corinthians 13. So by now, you know what love is and what it isn't. You know what love does and what love does not do. And you know that nothing is more important than love. That if you do not have love, it does not matter if you have all knowledge or all faith or all good works or all power or all wealth or all anything else. Because without love, you are and you do nothing. You have heard week after week of how love is patient and kind and not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. You have heard of the kindness and tenderness and joy of love, of its unending splendor and how it alone of all things lasts forever. And probably, at least during the sermons, if you were paying attention, you compared yourself to that standard. You ran your name through the list, through asking if you were patient and you, are you kind and are you all those things and you found that you fell short. But what happened then? Six messages, at least a month and a half later. How much more loving are you? Even if your hearts were stirred while you heard Eric so eloquently preach, where has that gotten you? Probably not very far. Maybe it did, and if so, praise God. But often our hearts grow cold. Daily life distracts us. There's a pandemic going on, and life is now mediated through screens and Zoom calls. And that's why, after this great chapter praising love, Paul needs to include this command. Pursue love. I know you know it's good. I know you know its excellencies. I just listed them in chapter 13, but the thing is you're going to forget. It'll fade. If you do not keep the splendor and the necessity of love in front of your eyes, you will forget and you will fall into the wide road of lovelessness. So the text says, pursue love. 
Make it your goal. Put it in front of you. Plan and scheme and strategize. Make it your dream to love, to be loving. And you all know what it's like to pursue something. You all have grades or colleges or majors that you want to get into, paths that you want your lives to take. And most of you at least don't sit around saying, yeah, that'd be nice. Oh, well, back to sleep. You think about it. You motivate yourself by thinking about what it will be like when you're there, when you have it, when you've made it. You take steps day after day after day to get to your goals. You pursue them. And this passage, though in truth all of scripture, is calling you to pursue love. Make love your dream and chase it. But how? How can it be done? What does it look like? While there could be many answers, I'm going to give you two. One not directly in tonight's passage and one in it. The first one, the one not in this passage, is to know and to think on and to love and to be pursued by the one who is love. Because the love that the Bible talks about, the love described in 1 Corinthians 13, it doesn't just come from nowhere. The reason love is at the center of all of the commands of Scripture and the reason that time after time the books of the Bible tell you to be loving or to love one another is that God is love. And the God who has existed from before all ages and worlds began, has existed as a great ocean and burning star of love, and that his infinite glory and power, it has turned to you and loved you. That is the message of Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the good news that underlies everything that is said in 1 Corinthians. The God who is love, eternally joyful and satisfied, he has set his great and immeasurable love on you. And that though we and though you have turned and rebelled against God and made yourself utterly unworthy of his love, though you have done whatever you could to make yourself unlovable, the Son of God, the eternally loved and loving image of God, came into this world. And he joined himself to humanity, and he was born a man, and he lived a perfect life, dying and rising again, so that anyone who believes in him is joined to him and becomes remade in him in the love that was there before the world began. Jesus came to bring people back to God and to let us know and experience the love that is the foundation of reality. And that means that you are loved. I don't know if any of you feel like you need to hear that today, but it's true. You are loved. You. You as you are. You are loved by the God who is perfectly lovely. You are loved 
by the one who knows everything about you, everything you ever thought or said or done and who upholds your existence at every moment. You have been loved into being and in Christ you are loved into a new life. You are loved into immortality, into eternity, into perfect and joyful union with God. You are not alone. You are cherished. You are delighted in. You are loved. And in Christ, who you are, your identity at its deepest level is shaped and is formed by this love. And inevitably, though with stops and starts and failures, you grow in Christ in both feeling the unshakable reality of this love and in turning to God in love. You come more to feel the love of God for you. And as you do, you are able to turn outwards in love for him and in love for others. So that's the first way to pursue love. Know and ponder and feel how you are pursued by the God who is love. Second, devise practical, concrete ways to love and to act lovingly to those around you, to your family, your friends, and in view of this passage today, those in the church. And while it may not initially sound like it, this includes desiring the spiritual gifts. Now, desiring spiritual gifts might at first sound like one of the farthest things from planning practical down-to-earth ways of loving your neighbor, but hopefully by the end of this message, you'll see that's not entirely the case. So because of that, and because we're in verse one and we have 18 more verses to go, instead of dwelling on all of the practical ways that you can love, we're going to move through this passage and see what desiring the spiritual gifts has to do with this. So look back down at the passage again, starting at verse one. And I think if you have the outlines in your notes, which is loosely related to this message, this is where we're moving from one point to another. So back down to the passage, verse one, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. The first thing after the command to, to pursue love that this passage gives us is another command to desire spiritual gifts. And that might be somewhat alien to you. I know naturally it is to me. Churches, at least in America, tend to divide along how spiritual gifts are viewed. And you and I are in churches that tend not to talk that much or think that much about them. There are some good reasons for this. The churches that do emphasize spiritual gifts often have, I think, unbiblical ideas about how they work and tend to approach them in a way that is, in my opinion, less than wise. Furthermore, there is a point of legitimate uncertainty whether or how often what we would call the spectacular gifts, gifts that are obviously supernatural, 
actually occur after the period in which the apostles live. Even Augustine, a pastor in Northern Africa 1,500 years ago, when he preached the section of 1 Corinthians, he was unaware of anyone in his time or place who was able to suddenly speak in tongues. Now, that doesn't mean God can't give these gifts. There's nothing clear in Scripture that says that they have to stop. But most people throughout most of the church in most of history have agreed that if the spectacular gifts still happen, they're relatively rare. And because of that, it's very easy to stop thinking about spiritual gifts at all. But this passage tells us that while the premise might be right, spectacular gifts are vanishingly rare in most circumstances, the conclusion is wrong. Instead, still, we are to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. God builds up his church. And the Christian church is not just some club or some group of people who sit around on Zoom while someone else talks at them. It is, as you learned in 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. Christ, the Son of God made man, is so united to his people who believe in him that we become part of him. We are included in him, in his body, and in his life. When he died, we died. When he rose from the dead, we rose to life. And he is at the right hand of God the Father on high. And so we are there, represented and included, guaranteed the presence of God forever. And just as a body is nourished by the same blood, so the body of Christ is filled and empowered by one and the same spirit. And God will never leave the body of Christ helpless or useless or bled out and ineffectual. Instead, to every single believer, he gives his spirit. And with the spirit, in the wisdom of God, he gives supernatural power. And as with many of the workings of God, this sometimes does not look all that special. While it may look like a small thing, let me assure you, even the smallest gifts of God are mighty, and they are perfectly suited to their task. He will give every one of his children power from on high, and he will enable you to do the things that he sets before you. He will give his church gifts, so desire them, yearn for them, ask God for them. That raises the question, which gifts? Well, chapter 12 gave us some lists. Knowledge, wisdom, healing, miracles, prophecy, tongues, helping, administrating, teaching. And isn't it odd to you? Isn't it striking how Paul is able to mix things that seem so mundane, teaching, administration, with things that we would long to see, miracles, healing? And not only that, but as an apostle of God who has seen the sick healed and the dead raised to life, he is able to look out at all those gifts and in chapter 12 say that teaching in the church is greater than gifts of healing. And in this passage, in chapter 14, he narrowly focuses on two, prophecy and speaking in tongues. And he narrows down on these two because there's a contrast that he wants to make. And while it's not perfectly clear what prophecy and speaking in tongues means, the passage does give us a general layout. Prophecy here is speaking from God broadly conceived. 
In verse 6, it includes speaking in revelation or in knowledge or in prophecy proper, which probably means foretelling the future or saying something that the speaker couldn't have otherwise known, or in teaching. But the gist of it is all of it looks just like talking. Nothing flashy, nothing clearly supernatural. It's just someone saying things to someone else. Speaking in tongues, on the other hand, is clearly speaking in a language that you do not know. Because of verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. I understand this as referring to speaking overflowingly in another human language that means something, but that the speaker does not understand. In addition, because of what Paul says later in the chapter, in verse 23, that if someone hears you speaking in tongues in the church, they're going to think you're crazy. It's very possible that it also refers to speaking very enthusiastically, very excitedly, shouting, singing, something that draws attention and is outside of what is normal. Regardless, the, the, the point of it is it's speaking in another language that you do not know in a way that is very attention-getting. So why these two? Why does Paul focus on just these two gifts? Well, think of the contrast. Understandable speech, incomprehensible speech. Just some person talking, someone shouting and singing in a new language. Both are spiritual gifts. Both are given from God, but only one of them is helpful to others. The one that looks boring and mundane is, in fact, the one that in the church is the most needed. And it's most needed because it best serves the purposes of love. That's precisely what Paul says. No one understands a person speaking in tongues, so he's speaking to God, the only person present who can understand him. But the one who prophesies... The one who says things from God that are understandable, he says, he speaks to people. She speaks to people. And most importantly, such speech builds people up. It is for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And in this passage, time and time again, Paul repeats the phrase, building up, or something like it, because that's what love does. It builds up others. Love is not concerned about its own fame, but is concerned about the good, the comfort, the encouragement of other people. Love is desiring the good of someone else. And so our, our desire for spiritual things, our longing for God to work, it must be oriented around building up others. And that is why Paul makes this distinction. That is why one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless they're interpreted. It's not because one is a greater power from God. It's not because one uses more holiness points or manna or chi. It's that one of these is devoted to building up the church and one of them isn't. So long for spiritual gifts, he says but long for gifts that build others up. And this is at the heart of why Paul spends so much time talking about gifts and love and the right way to desire God's gifts. Because you see, the Corinthians were in many ways a blessed church, but they were a messed up church. 
They took all the things that God gave them, all the good that came their way, all the miracles that happened among them, and they used them to puff themselves up. They thought of themselves as important. They made themselves great, and they took the blood-bought gifts of the Spirit for the body of Christ, and they turned them into a popularity contest. And while that might sound like a ridiculous thing, I mean, how could you take miracles and make them about yourself? That same temptation lives within each one of us. This is how we are with all of God's gifts, not just the spiritual ones. It is often all too easy to take the good things that God has given us, talent, intelligence, friendships, family, money, and to use them to draw attention to ourselves. We may not be shouting in other languages, meaning look at me, look at me, but we take our skills and our privileges and we flaunt them around to the same effect. Look at me. We draw attention to ourselves. We puff ourselves up and we turn the gifts of God into tricks and trinkets to adorn our fame. But this should not be so. Every gift from God is to be used in love to build others up. And this is true of the most daily gifts and of our blessings and privileges. And it is all the more true of the spiritual gifts given by the Spirit of God to enable us to be the body of the Son of God on this earth. Long for the spiritual gifts. But with whatever power God gives you, use it to build others up. And Paul goes into examples to drive this point home in verses 6 through 11. When he says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking to the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. Now here, he's coming to them with example after example of why the way that they're using speaking in tongues isn't helpful. And it all sums up as this. No one understands what you're saying. And if no one understands what you're saying, it's not helpful. It's like if I were to come to you tonight to preach a message, Glosses Lalon. It just doesn't do any good. It might draw attention, but it certainly isn't helpful. Now, how does this apply to us? From what I understand, none of you walk up to each other and start shouting in languages that won't be understood. And if you are, stop. Except to Eric. You can, you can do that to Eric. But instead, how many of you take the gifts that you do have and use them in ways that are not helpful? My guess is that some of you are smarter than others of you. Some of you know the Bible better. Some of you are better at talking. 
And if that's you and you come to Bible study or a small group or anything in the church, do you use those great skills of intellect and language to make things encouraging and understandable to others? Or do you say witty things that the others know just how much you know? If you, or really your family, because you guys don't really have money yet, are financially well off, do you come to church in the newest and most expensive stuff? Do you show off your new Apple Watch and sneakers and whatever else you now use to signify wealth? I don't know, glossy printed out memes. Or do you come humbly and use what you have to be hospitable, to be kind, to be generous? As Paul reminded the Corinthians at the beginning of this letter, you don't have anything that wasn't given to you. So if you use what you have to point to yourself instead of building others up, you're no better than a guitar that's out of tune. You're a flute played by someone who's never played the flute before, annoyingly shrieking and of no use. Worse than that, if you use God gifts to build yourself up instead of building others up, you alienate those around you. While Paul means it literally, since foreign languages are in view, to use God's gifts only for your own pride is to make those around you foreigners to you, and you become a foreigner to them. Instead of building up the body of Christ by your actions, you can cause tumorous divisions to separate brother from brother, sister from sister. You either build or you tear down. You either love or you alienate. And all of the Christian life is either drawing nearer to others in love or failing, rebelling, and pushing others away. The choice is yours, but scripture is clear what path to take. Back down to the passage. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Again, Paul returns to his central point. Pursue love by building up the church. Pursue love by seeking and praying for the spiritual power to build up the church. And this last iteration of his point makes a slight change to his argument. So far, it's been simple. Prophecy builds up others. Speaking tongues in church only builds up yourself. But now he adds an extra touch. Prophecy in the church, speaking words from God, for other people in the church is better than tongues because it involves the whole person. Now, if ever you get the ability to suddenly speak in a language you do not understand, one thing will become readily apparent. It is a language you do not understand. Paul seems to be describing from experience that when he sang or when he prayed in tongues, he felt things, his spirit was moved but he didn't understand a thing that was going on. His mind was idle. And while many people today seem to think that that's a great prospect, a deep emotional spiritual experience without all those thoughts getting in the way, that is not Paul's reaction. He would rather use his mind as well. 
And he says he'd rather use the mind of others so that they can understand and say amen. Why is that? It's not because he views the mind as superior to the spirit. It's not some internal human hierarchy. Rather, it's because he wants to be involved in praying and in worshiping and in encouraging as a whole person. He wants spirit and emotions and mind and will all united in praising God and thanking him for his gifts. He wants that to overflow to others so that instead of alienating them, instead of leaving them on the outside, they're invited in and are made able to say amen, made able to worship and thank and love God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind as well. It is not that tongues are bad. Paul experienced them and he was glad that he did. But this worship with the whole person, this worship with others in the church, this was his goal. And that is where love led him. And because of that, Paul ends this passage with something remarkable. And it's with this last reflection that will end. In verse 19, Paul says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, this is something amazing. Paul, who worked wonders, who saw miracles, who spoke in languages he did not know, he weighed up all of that and compared it with speaking a few words in church that did someone else some good. And which did he prefer? Which did he find more valuable? In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And if that doesn't reorient our estimation of spiritual gifts and what is and is not significant, I don't know what would. If that doesn't show us how important love and building up others in the church is, I don't know what could. While most of us would love to have some proof of the supernatural, some overflowing evidence of God's presence as represented by unending speech in new and unknown languages, Paul says, no. I would rather say five words that did someone else in the church some good. I would rather say five words in love to another person in the church than have hours of miracles attend my presence. And so today, as you talk to each other, as you care for each other, as you talk to your families, you can do something more significant than speaking 10,000 miraculous words. You could say five out of love. Hey, how are you doing? You are loved by God. Jesus knows all your pain. God is there for you. Jesus Christ died for you. May we choose the way of love. May you long for power from on high, but ask God for gifts that build up one another. May we follow the God of love who gave himself for us by giving ourselves for one another. And may we build up the church with God's power working through us in love. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you love us now and that despite all of the ways we misuse the gifts you give, you continue to love. I pray that we would receive strength from you to say things that are needed, to know things that are needed, to act in ways that are needed, to do all of the things that you would have us do to build up your church so that we might know the love that you have and we might become vessels for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.